Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. This computer has a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. Our priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? Bites. It's a Wednesday evening, we're in the Triple R studios, it's raining outside and we've just been listening to a few hours with a beautiful Kate Kingsmill and the distant sky. I'm in the mood. Uh, I am with Dan Salmon. Good evening. I'm Vanessa Taholka. Vanessa, you sound like you're in the mood. That was the smoothest intro to this show I think I've ever heard you do. That was it was so just good. the least prescriptive maybe. It, it was very nice. We are, we are very happy to bring you an episode of Bite Into It this evening. Uh, I've got my peppermint tea. Dan, what have you got to make you cosy? I've got a glass of water and some painkillers. <laughs> that'll do. That'll do. Uh, we instructions. Let's not get into that. Let's not do that. Hey, what we should get into, though, is tonight's show. We're really excited to be bringing you an interview with a guy who has made an app to try and solve that hoary little chestnut of when you're trying to find a place you can take all your family and friends with their various dietary requirements. Oh, Dan, is this a problem for you? I think it's a problem for everyone, I'm isn't sure it? I'm sure it is. I, yeah. So, I mean, in, in you know your immediate circle, you're bound to have at least one vegan, one person with a nut allergy of some description, someone who's no onion or garlic, whatever that one is, fructose, I think. It's, it's you know, having people around for dinner is a minefield. Going out is actually a lot easier, but this sounds like it's going to make it even easier. I really have high hopes for it and, um, yeah, look forward to hearing more. So we'll be we'll be talking about the Fudini app later in the show. But before we get there, in local news, uh, yes. we cannot avoid data breaches to save ourselves. We can't. So um, if, if you haven't uh, been following the news... Um, the latest data breach has been uh, at Medibank Private. So uh, initially, um, the, uh, the you know, one of Australia's largest health insurers uh, was uh, believed to have been uh, broken into one of uh, two of their or one of their subsidiary companies, AHM, as well as uh, the International Student Health uh, Insurance Company, um, and. Data was stolen, including, you know, personal details, names, addresses, genders, um, Medicare card numbers and health records and the claim history, which is actually probably one of the more problematic things. And I guess that's why people are saying it's worse than the Optus breach, because at least the Optus breach, it was, sure, very sensitive personally identifying information. Mm. 
However, it didn't go as far as medical records. It didn't. Um, and the, the, the latest this morning is that um, initially it was believed that it was contained to the AHM and international uh, student databases, but it's since been revealed this morning that it was actually the entire Medibank database, including people who have uh, insurance policies with Medibank Private. Look, I really feel for any companies going through this sort of thing. Mm. Um, you know, we can play a blame game later, and I'm sure the regulators will. But uh, what a horrible thing to have to go through, uh, you know, that responsibility that you feel to your customers mm. and, and holding that data and having really valid reasons to have a lot of that data in this case. Um, and then going through the effects of having a cyber criminal trying to verify if these if these attacks are real and if, they're, if what they're saying to you is credible, mm. um, getting the threats in broken English. So last week the hacker was threatening to blackmail individual customers mm. and saying that, um, I'm, I'm going to roughly quote here, 1K most media persons from your database, you know, that's who they were going to target, the, yep. you know, most at-risk, uh, you know, People. people with you know large numbers with of profiles. social media pro- social media yeah. followers that kind of thing so it's definitely you know it's a malevolent malevolent actor who's gotten in touch with Medibank and made these demands um, you know it, it doesn't it, broken English is possibly indicative of them either coming from another being country a or actor, being a foreign maybe. actor or yeah. perhaps someone who's trying to look like a foreign actor. Who knows? You don't Who knows? Know. And we probably never will. What we did hear this week, though, was that um, Medibank have said they do not have cyber attack insurance, so it's going to be a very expensive exercise for them um, to partly to help replace compromised IDs mm-hmm. um, and also offering identity monitoring services for impacted customers. But there'll be a range of other things they need to do, uh, including obviously improve their security. And I think, you know, there should be a lot of IT teams in Australia feeling really vindicated this week when people grumble about the sort of training that they roll out, asking us to please pay attention to the email addresses and hover over links and see where requests for information are being from. When it looks like one individual's access has been compromised, you have to wonder about all those different threat models of ways that they can get an individual's login details. Mm. And yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's really awful. It is awful, and, we, and uh, if if anything does come from this, anything good comes from this, perhaps it will be that you know people who might not have given two hoots around you know the phishing tests that come through from your enterprise IT department might actually have some pause for thought to think. All right, well, what if it was my data that my lax attitude towards a cybersecurity caused. Uh, you know, millions of people to, including yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super rough. Um, So really feeling for anyone affected by any of these data breaches. Definitely. It's uh, it's awful. But feeling for people working on the inside too, trying to deal with it. Absolutely. And if you are feeling uh, impacted in any way, you can uh, reach out to Lifeline on 13, 11, 14. Um, One thing we were talking about, you know, that companies might need to do in terms of their, you know, cybersecurity. Another thing they might need to do is pay a big fat fine. Yeah. 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 So... Uh, well, the uh, the Attorney General has announced that there will be tougher penalties for serious data breaches. Um, so on the 22nd of October, they released an update from the Honourable Mark Dreyfus, and they're going to introduce legislation to significantly increase penalties for repeated or serious privacy breaches. Mm-hmm. Um, what I also would like to see is more constraints on, you know, requests for data wherever possible mm. you know what can you get rid of but let's let's unpack some of those penalties um, it will 
the uh, Privacy Legislation Amendment Bill Mm -hmm. will increase maximum penalties that can be applied under the Privacy Act for serious or repeated privacy breaches from the current 2.22 million penalty to whichever is greater of $50 million or three times the value of any benefit obtained through misuse of information, which is a really interesting one, Mm. or 30% of a company's adjusted turnover in the relevant period. And that's the greater of those. So that is huge. Um, The bill will also provide the Australian Information Commissioner with greater powers to resolve privacy breaches. Mm -hmm. And this is something that a lot of privacy advocates have been talking about, that the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner doesn't have enough powers in this space. Um, They are going to strengthen the notifiable data breaches scheme to ensure that there's really um, clear protocols over how you need to engage with um, your customers or anyone else's data that you're holding, like it could be other businesses, Mm -hmm. about letting them know in a timely way and in a detailed way what might be involved in a breach. Mm So so the kind of information that's been compromised. That's right. Right. And then finally, equip the Australian Information Commissioner and the Australian Communications and Media Authority, so ACMA doesn't often get brought up here, but yes, Mm. with greater information sharing powers. So when we say greater information sharing powers, I'm guessing they haven't really gone into detail around what that's about. They haven't yet, but um, I imagine it's the ability to to talk about some of these breaches kind of early? Yeah. Who knows? That, that's, it's, that's we need to get a lawyer in here. We do need to get a lawyer in here. I th- I get think, a lawyer up. I think the, the last couple of times, of, well, and this seems to be happening with monotonous regularity now, but whenever we've been talking about a data breach, it's been like, let's get a lawyer in to have yeah. a chat about this. It's like, yeah, you know what? We probably do need to get I, a lawyer I in. think we've had some really good informed chats and it helps that um, one of our team, Lily, is actually in cybersecurity and um, has given us some great informed commentary post the Optus breach a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Um, so you can always go back and listen to that on demand. But, um, yeah, we'll certainly be looking into other experts in the field. Absolutely. We've had some academics on, mm-hmm. but time to time to lawyer up. I think it's, it's always time. <laughs> There's never time to lawyer up. Look, I'm, I'm actually really interested in this idea of what a serious breach constitutes. Repeated, I understand. Um the the I, I'm not I don't want to, I'm certainly not on the side of the companies at, in this instance. But if there was there needs to be a, a lot of clarity around what constitutes a serious breach, because a lot of these times it's not it's it, you know it's it it's accidental. It's something that they might not have known there was a particular vulnerability or something like. And the look, there's some due diligence thing there. Absolutely, yeah. it's probably around the actual data involved. I would say than, so. Yeah. yeah, but but in terms and def but I mean when it comes to repeated. If you do it, like, there's no justification for having it done to you twice. There's absolutely no justification for having it done to you twice, in my opinion. Sure. <laughs> sure. And I think, um, you know, thousands, millions of Australians would agree with you. Yeah. Particularly the unfortunate souls who um, journalists managed to find who'd been victims of both the Optus and the Medicare breach. And you just thought, oh, someone's been busy on the internet this morning trying to find that person. <laughs> yep. Has anyone been? Yes. Oh, it's, look, it's, yeah. yeah. Feeling for everyone who's been touched by this. Definitely. Triple R. You're with Buy Into It, Dan Salmon on the panel, Vanessa Tolka here. Just talking at him, making him do all the hard work with the button pressing. Oh, it's 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 a tough life. <laughs> that was beautiful. We just heard from Press Club with "I Can Change," and now we'd like to welcome our first guest for the evening. Um, his name is Dylan McDonnell, and he's the creator and founder behind Foodini, which is an app for people with food intolerances. Welcome to the show, Dylan. 
Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. So you've tapped into a really relevant concern of everybody I know. Uh, We were talking (laughs) earlier in the show just saying, look, everyone knows somebody with some sort of food allergy or intolerance or, you know. A preference sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, But how did you come to be so interested in, you know, catering well to people with food intolerances? Yeah, um, so I suppose the journey for me starts back to um, childhood. I was quite sick for a few years when I was younger uh, and no one could really figure out what was wrong with me. Uh, And then finally, I think I was around 10, one of the doctors figured it out, sent me for tests for celiac disease and came back positive. Um, So that was kind of, I suppose, the beginning of my journey with dealing with food allergies uh, and I've been on a gluten-free diet since then uh, and obviously it's, it's come a long way um, since then I think at the time there was probably no one within 100 miles of in rural Ireland who had even heard the words gluten-free or celiac disease but um, you know the options became a lot better over the years but the one thing that I suppose has been constant ever since was the difficulty in eating out um, you know the stress when making plans with friends or, or co-workers you know, doing a lot of research online, ringing ahead to talk to staff, you know, having having everyone in the restaurant running around in a, in a panic trying to figure out what you could eat. Uh, and just the general kind of lack of awareness with, with this issue over the last, say, 20 years. Uh, and, and it was kind of, I suppose, that background and context that, that led me to do some research into it when I, when I landed in Australia from, from Ireland. And, and, yeah, that's, I suppose, the genesis of, of where Foodini came from. It's, it's a very personal story, but I think one that people will find really relatable. And uh, there's a real seriousness when you're actually at the allergy level, not just at the intolerance level. I'm personally sitting at an intolerance level with, you know, lactose and things. And that's unbearable enough when you can't manage what's in your foods. Uh, how, how have you found um, the journey in terms of people taking these issues seriously uh, in, in the hospitality industry? definitely got a lot better. It, it, it absolutely has. Um, I think a lot of restaurants are now at, at a minimum aware of it, aware of the importance of it. But I think what we've seen, especially I suppose since COVID took off, is that in, in the hospitality industry at the moment, there is there's a lack of staff uh, and there's a lack especially of kind of trained and experienced staff. There's a lot of younger people in there and, and working in restaurants and I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners will, will, will relate and I've seen that over the last year or so and as a result, there definitely has been a slight, um, I think, probably increase in the risk in terms of a younger, maybe new staff member who mightn't have gone through all the allergy training yet and, and you know, the risk of them potentially making a, a mistake, an innocent mistake, but a mistake nonetheless around, you know, whether they're sesame in the hummus or, or you know, they might not just not be aware of, of what not might be in what sauce. You know, the little small things that can trip you up and, and that can you know, cause a really serious incident if, if, if it slips through the cracks. So, yeah, overall a big improvement, but still a long way to go, I think, in terms of being able to, to fully cater to this audience and this community and make sure that, you know, everyone can, can dine out stress-free, really, and, and, you know, not feel excluded from social gatherings. Absolutely, it's very important. So, so Dylan, you, you mentioned uh, sesame allergies, which is uh, something that I have only known one person to have until I met the second person twenty five years later. Um, that's something like let's let's say for example, I am one of these people with a sesame allergy or whatever. Whatever my much more common in the Middle East, by the way. Uh, there you go. Mm. Um, yeah, but. 
So so I download Food, Foodini. What's it going to do for me? So Foodini, essentially, it, it's an app that connects, as you mentioned, that the one in three people with dietary needs to, to restaurants and brands that can cater for them. So, so to, to your point, I know you mentioned you only have probably known two people with sesame allergies, but it is one in three people that, that falls into our net because we cater from everything from, you know, the big food allergies like gluten, dairy, nuts, eggs, through to vegan and vegetarian, through to low FODMAPs, and then all the way down to that level of tomato, garlic, onion, uh, coriander even. You'd be amazed at so the people who've said, we just hate coriander. Yeah. <laughs> coriander off our plate, that's enough for us. Like it, I was mind blown by that at the start. But in, in essence, it, you download the app, you create your dietary profile, so you select whichever of those diets and allergens are applicable for you. The app will show you exactly what restaurants can cater for you. They'll show you exactly what options you can eat when you get there. And it's all been dietitian reviewed and approved. So we have a team of dietitians who work with all of our restaurant partners to confirm the ingredients, the allergens, the preparation processes, you know, whether it's uh, safe from a cross-contamination perspective. And we simply reflect that reality in, our, in the Foodini app. And that allows our diners to make an informed decision, depending on whether they're celiac like myself or, or you know, gluten intolerant or, or lactose intolerant, which might have, you know, a slightly different, uh, you know, threshold in terms of the safety that that's needed for that person sure that's so, what Houdini does well so so that that's that's a, a massive step up from what people have had to rely on as far as i'm aware recently because as someone who doesn't have dietary requirements myself i generally don't look up look this, into this too much detail however having said that like if i'm looking for a place to go with someone who does have a dietary requirement the best that we've had is you know TripAdvisor reviews where someone's like oh here's a half Photo of of the menu, and I think this thing doesn't. And it says this has well, got been amazing free or, sites yeah. like Happy Cow. But you're right in the sense that they've all been user sourced, like mm. a lot of those resources. Is that like a key differentiator for you, Dylan? How are you? How are you sourcing this information? And that you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's a key differentiator between, say, Happy Cow, or even there's another app. I think. Well, it's mainly US, but it's in Australia ish as well, called Find Me Gluten Free, which can be helpful and I have used them in the past to kind of try and point me in the right direction but the key difference as you mentioned was they're all completely user driven so I will leave a review you read my review and you kind of trust me and, and, and hope that, that that was correct and that it's, it's still up to date as of today's date whereas the difference with us is our our dietitian team work directly with the chef in each restaurant, go through their menu and ingredients list in detail and, and literally reflect every single ingredient and allergen on that from that menu in the app. So exactly, as, as you just mentioned, that is that kind of key differentiator point. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, the, the feedback from the community so far has been really, really positive. The other kind of, to be honest, the solutions I think most people used other than those other apps you mentioned were, you know, like typing into Google Maps, gluten-free restaurants near me. And <laughs> yeah. what would happen then is, as, as probably happened to yourself as well, is, you know, you'd have a, a regular restaurant with 100 pizzas, all regular, with one side salad tagged with gluten-free, <laughs> and then all of a sudden that's a gluten-free restaurant, and, and God forbid the poor person who rocks on looking for their pizza and is eating a, a few leaves of lettuce a few minutes later and going home. But And the other place that, is that people have used is... is Facebook communities. A lot of groups on Facebook like Celiacs in Sydney, Vegans in Inner West Sydney, same down in Melbourne. I know there's hundreds of groups as well. And they're so active. You wouldn't believe how active these groups are. But again, it's just, you know, relying on, on other people responding in comments and, and potentially not up to date or, or certainly not dietitian reviewed information anyway. 
and 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 it's yeah, that's a long-winded way of explaining, I suppose, some of the differentiators. I guess, um, you know, aside from being interested in the app because it solves such an important problem, I'm also interested in the process you've gone through in terms of product development, trying to understand all of these issues and build up user profiles and decide what problems you're going to solve specifically because it's such a, a minefield, like the, the logistical challenge of trying to keep track of a massive um, data set is is really challenging. Could you tell us a bit about the process you went through and maybe, you know, some false starts you might have had, some red herrings you might have followed before you, you landed on on the product that is in the market today? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're spot on. It took a bit of time to get there, that's for sure. Uh, nearly nearly two years of kind of building and refining and, and, and testing. Um, day one, I started just trying to cater for gluten-free because that was what was affecting me. And I was selfishly just trying to solve my own problem. <laughs> uh, and then the more research I did, the more I realized, well, actually, if I'm going to solve it for gluten-free, why couldn't I solve it for everything? So that was probably one big thing at the start. I think the other big thing I started with is I tried to uh, have a delivery component day one as well. You know, I was probably coming through the lens of watching the Uber Eats and DoorDashes and Deliveroo's of this world and trying to create, you know, the dietary needs equivalent. Uh, and whilst that might be on the radar for the future, what I quickly realized talking to people was that, you know, there are already delivery services, um, but what there wasn't was a, a genuine source of information for, for dietary and allergy-related information. So I, I, you know, shifted to focus on solving that one uh, main core problem, which is where can I eat and what can I eat when I get there and how can I trust and, and rely on the information you're giving me. So that's what Foodini decided to solve. And while, you know, there's... So many different verticals that that are applicable to us, and you know, food allergies are relevant everywhere, from restaurants to grocery stores to stadiums to zoos to airplanes. You know, there's so many different avenues you can chase this down. But for now, we're really just focused on on the you know hospitality, restaurant, uh, cafe vertical. Um, the other, and, and sorry, that's the last key point. Was at the start, we didn't have the dietitian review component. And it, the feedback we were getting was, you know, well, how are we going to trust that this information is, is, is accurate, which is, was a fair comment. And that is why we brought in the dietitian team to work directly with the restaurant so that we could put a stamp on this and be like, you know, we can stand over that we're reflecting this information correctly in our database so that, um, you know, users can make informed dining decisions. The one, thing I will, the one thing I will put in there as a preface to all of this is that anyone with a food allergy will always still need to flag the fact that they have a food allergy in the restaurant. You know, that won't change because the restaurant needs to be put on notice so that they can have the correct procedures in the kitchen. But I suppose what we, where we can help is we can point people in the right direction of knowing that this is a place that has options suitable for you. These are the ingredients in that option. And, you know, it can take a lot of the searching and stress around going to someplace that won't be able to cater for you out of the equation. Absolutely. D Dylan, it's refreshing that someone is actually putting stock in human brains. L like in the last few years, we've just seen every app or in every kind of idea seem to be like come from the idea of harnessing machine learning or artificial <laughs> intelligence. And it's just nice to to have to be talking about something where we've actually gone. You know what? There are actually ex experts, dietitians who know this kind of stuff, and we need that human and, and hospitality experts, and they're having conversations. And <laughs> Absolutely. But having said that, were you tempted to involve artificial intelligence <laughs> or machine learning in this in any way? So, 
So, okay, okay. So, while I completely hear you on that point, and we have a completely have a human component to everything we've done. But having said that, we have absolutely brought in some, uh, some machine <laughs> awesome. learning and, and artificial intelligence to the to the equation as well, simply to make this scalable, right? Yeah. Because we recently raised the you know a pre-seed round and, and brought in some VC and, and really professional investors. And the key, one of the things they flagged very early doors, which was spot on, was you know how is this scalable? If 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 if, if this entire process needs to be done manually. So we have brought in the ability for our, our technology to scan restaurant menus, to pre-populate a lot of the, the data and auto-tag it with, with the appropriate allergens. And it's that kind of, that's the starting point from our dietitian team. You know, they start with, they take the machine learning version of it, let's call it, and they will review that and work off that with the restaurant. So essentially the machine will catch nearly everything but anything it doesn't catch will be corrected by the dietitian team over the top. So, so that's how you kind of, I suppose, mix both. I think either one without the other doesn't work or, or at least doesn't create a scalable business, but that's how we can scale and also ensure the accuracy of the information. A human fail-safe. Who knew? Hey, exactly. hey, Dylan, just for a bit of fun, have you thought of pivoting off a side project where you uh, report on food trends? Because surely you're going to be some of the first people to notice uh, that there is a rise in a mention of a certain ingredient or a, you know, a certain uh, something that's happening uh, in... A novel you know, allergy. That's right. <laughs> You're, you're beginning to tap into our, you know, potential future data. Your roadmap, there, I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's funny, like, if you if you take away the kind of, I suppose, the, the um, core proposition we're giving to the community at large, you know, down the road, we will certainly have a lot of very interesting data around, not, not no personal data, but in terms of how many celiacs live in X suburb. You know, how many, what is the percentage rise of people selecting coriander as, as, a, as a preference? What are the percentage of people who are now moving on to a vegan diet over the last month compared to six months previous? And whether you're, a, you know, a large food tech company or a restaurant, you know, trying to decide what suburb to set up your restaurant in, you know, I think that that data will hold uh, a lot of value to larger corporations in the future and, and not that we'll be uh, giving doling it out, but uh, I think from, from a company valuation perspective, there, there'll certainly be something there. Absolutely. Hey, hey Dylan, I, I did say earlier I don't have any food allergies or dietary intolerances, but I do have foods that I don't like. I've got, <laughs> I've got in, yeah. certain ingredients that I just can't stand. Is, yeah. Oh, the fussy eater a, user profile. Yeah, I so don't know. Does, does, does Foodini cater to fussy eaters, or is it really about people who actually have a need? No, uh, no it caters to... Literally anyone who dislikes something. So, oh, so I can say Game I don't changer. want cucumber in anything that I eat, oh. and they will flag that for me? Correct. Oh, what, yeah. we do we, we, what we do is though, we treat everything as if it's an allergy. So if you go on there and you select, for example, the coriander example, I do. I, you select coriander and save that as your dietary profile, the Fudini app will in, in, in interpret that as that allergy against coriander and will not allow you to, you know, see or, well, it will show you, but it will show market as unavailable for you, any item that contains in that dish. So, so if you're in a, a venue... Allergy, in, mm. Sorry, sorry, Dylan, go for it. No, I was just saying whether that's a food allergy, a preference, an intolerance, it doesn't matter that the Apple will kind of spit back the same data. And one other point I just want to mention as well is because whilst, as you just mentioned yourself, you might just have one or two items that you don't like, but a lot of people will have 
you know, a family member, a friend, co-workers that, that do have these allergies. And one of the things that we developed that we're really proud of is a group search feature. So if you, for example, have a family of four, like a lot of, or, or five, like a lot of people have, and there's maybe the, the, the parent who just doesn't like one or two things, maybe a, a vegetarian spouse, a child with a shellfish allergy, and, you know, a child who's gluten intolerant. You can create a group search feature whereby you can put in the four profiles and the app will actually tell you what restaurant is most suitable for the entire group. Genius. And so what each individual family member can eat. Yeah, so that's, that's one of our, the, the features that we're very proud of and that a lot of families, groups, co-workers, friends ha- have been utilizing to make that kind of coordinate amongst the different food allergies a bit easier. Yeah. I can only imagine the uh, very valued members of teams around, you know, different workplaces who are responsible for organizing firm functions <laughs> going, oh, this would, this would save me some hassle. I, rem- I literally remember in my, I was, I was a lawyer in, in my old life and I remember my manager coming up to me and work so many times being like, Dylan, I know you're celiac and, and you know, Johnny's vegan and, and Mary has a, has a nut allergy and I haven't a clue where to book for this. Can you please help? <laughs> you know, that was yeah. such a regular conversation. Uh, and, then again, and it's really unfair that for that burden to be pushed back on the people who do have some sort of allergy or intolerance. Hey, hey know, Dylan, but, but it, oh, sorry, yeah, I was going to ask you, just when you're in your research phase, you know, for years we've been hearing that the rate of allergies in, in people is going up. Um, did, you know, and I don't know how accurate that is now, you know, because it's been a while since I've heard that sort of thing. Did your initial research uncover anything like that? And has that fed into, you know, how strong you thought maybe this business proposition was? Absolutely. And and you guys might be aware, you might not, but Melbourne is actually the food allergy capital of the world. You know, it has the highest reported rate of food allergies per capita globally, right? Wow. So that's just, that's just Melbourne in and of itself, right? So hence why it's been such a, since we launched there just about a month ago, you know, been such a successful market for us already. But generally in the Western world, it is about one in three people who have a dietary need. And even if you drill into something like, like gluten-free and celiac disease, I think in Australia it's about 1.5% of the population have celiac disease, but nearly 12% follow a gluten-free diet. That just tells you how many people on a gluten-free diet are not actually, you know, do not have celiac disease, probably just maybe feel a bit unwell after it or are making that choice for, uh, you know, uh, a health lifestyle, um, from a healthy lifestyle perspective. But uh, Yes, catering the trend, to the keto eaters. Yeah, plenty of those down here. Exactly, exactly. But the trends, there's no doubt about it. The trends, and, and I did a lot of research on this, and I won't bore you with, the, with every single number, but year on year on year, the rate of food allergy globally increases. The rate of um, adoption of lifestyle diets like vegan, vegetarian, and keto increases. I think actually one, one stat I will throw at you is in the last four years in the U.S., there's been a 600% increase in the number of people identifying as vegan. Oh, my gosh. So that will tell you straight away the, the explosive growth in, in one diet. Um, and, and like I said, food allergies, um, you know, dietary preferences, intolerances, it's, it's year on year on year growth. So I think, you know, at one point I was looking at it, looking at the shelves, you know, the gluten in coals and woolies and seeing, you know, one gluten-free bread option and maybe one pack of biscuits if I'm lucky. Now you go in there and there's a whole aisle in there dedicated to that stuff. So there, there's no doubt that the growth in this, and it's only going in one direction and mm. that's up. Mm. And so I think we're, we're, I wish we were in there a few years earlier and, and I had the solution earlier for everyone, but, you know, better late than never and it, it's still definitely a growing market all the time definitely definitely hey hey dylan it's like we've talked about how 
great it is an idea for people who are, you know, looking for a place to eat. It also sounds like a really good proposition for restaurants to actually, you know, save the angst of, you know, staff members who are being, you know, maybe yelled at for not being able to provide the you know, fussy eaters, the things that they don't like. It's it like it sounds like a great proposition for restaurants. How do restaurants in Melbourne, you've only been around here for a month, how do they get involved if they haven't heard of you already? Yeah, and, and just on that point, I'm, I'm only going to mention this because I read it literally 15 minutes ago, but I just saw the the, the, the James Corden incident that where he got banned from that restaurant in New York. Apparently, he's come out and said it was because his wife had a food allergy, and, and apparently three times they brought out the wrong food to the table, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that could make her very sick. Now, he apologized for apparently the comment he said was rude, and he shouldn't have said that, but it's kind of one of those examples of, while he was in the wrong for the way he reacted, it's another example of the kind of mistakes being made in a top-end New York restaurant for someone with a food allergy, which, again, if they hadn't maybe been called out on, could have potentially resulted in anaphylactic if, if, if his wife is anaphylactic. But that's just something of interest that I literally read 15 <laughs> minutes ago. But for, for, any, for any restaurant in Melbourne who, who's interested, um, if they jump onto the Foodini website, www.getfoodini, that's G-E-T, foodini.com, um, just jump over to the partner page and, and submit a, they just put in their name and their uh, restaurant name. Our team will get straight in touch with them. And the beauty from a restaurant's perspective is we only take just about an hour of their time to onboard to our platform. Our dietitian team does all the heavy lifting uh, prior to even jumping on the call by taking their menu and, and making sure it's already in, had, you know, the, the kind of core data has been input. Um, and like I said, an hour of their time to run through and confirm all the ingredients, allergens, etc. And then they're good to go. And that's it. And in addition to kind of the risk-saving element and the time-saving element uh, with staff, etc., we also do drive a lot of new loyal customers to the restaurant. Because if there's one thing I can tell you about people with food allergies and dietary needs, it's when they find some place that they like and that can cater to them, they go back a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. From personal experience. And as someone who wants to be a a, a nice host, you know, if you can invite your vegan friends along and know that the only option won't be a mushroom risotto, then, uh, you know, you're making friends there. That's really great. Uh, We're so excited about your app. Um, Excellent work, Dylan. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing about it. Uh, If any of our listeners are interested in, in Foodini, they can find it at Get Foodini or look for it on the iOS Marketplace or in the Google Play Store. Dylan, all the best with it, and, uh, yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on how you go. Thank you so much, guys, and really appreciate you having me on and for your time, so thank you. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. With Bite Into It on Triple R with Dan Salmon. Hello. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Uh, it's great to have you with us. We are really enjoying the show this evening. Absolutely. We've uh, had a lot of local news that was a bit challenging and then a local release of an app, which is just super cool. It was very cool. So if you missed it, go back and hear about Foodini later. Definitely. Now, speaking of the weather, now this is something that I has. I was watching the federal budget last night. Yes, as was I. As was you, and we, this will <laughs> this will be something we're about to talk about. But before we launch into what the budget actually contained, it was an interesting to be watching it and not have all the journalists be freezing in Canberra. Yes, and so like sitting there on like and you know the weather's quite humid and it was quite summery almost, and I was just like. 
it's interesting because I always associate budget night with cold weather in Canberra. There you go. Yeah. Have you ever been involved in some sort of budget lock-in situation? No, no, I've never been important enough. Have you? Uh, I have been, no, adjacent to colleagues who have been locked in to do their analysis on it and Mm. uh, corporate colleagues. And that was always interesting. We were just like, stock up, here's the snacks, good luck. Yeah, enjoy being locked in a room with journalists for six hours. Yeah, and I'm sorry to hear that your mobile phone will be stuck inside a twisties packet until the end of this. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they use, right? I think so. Very, very... Low-tech. Makeshift Faraday cages. Yeah. Yeah. So. Budget. Let's let's talk budget. Let's do it. And uh, let's uh, tip our hats to a bunch of uh, professional services, people who put together their analysis in a really snappy way and we've, you know, really leaned on that. Yeah. Yeah. We won't say we've lifted it entirely. No, we want to be efficient. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We're all about that here. Definitely. Uh, So climate and energy policy. What were some of the key insights that we heard? Well, so we're looking at... um, Renewable technologies, we're looking at things like resources to support the transformation to net zero, uh, improve our climate resistance, particularly considering that the uh, ongoing natural disasters that we seem to be uh, experiencing at the moment, um, and to build the climate capability of Australian government institutions, which I think is actually really important. Yeah, and it'll, you know, the devil will be in the detail, of we'll course. say that a lot. Mm-hmm. But this is the first budget where climate change has been explicitly um, called out as central to... Um, not only the opportunities on our horizon, um, but also some of the risks that we're facing and well-being as a whole. Mm. I mean, it's not exactly the, you know, Global Happiness Index. No, but it and is, it's also not news. It should have been great. Some, absolutely. It should have been something that's been happening for the last 10 or 12 that years. That framing is fantastic absolutely. and just really responsible and... Um, it, I mean, it's hard to get excited about a budget, so this is about as excited as <laughs> I can get about it. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, it was great them talking about the, you know, re-emphasising the commitment to reduce Australia's emissions by 43% by 2030. Now, we know it's not enough. And then by net zero by 2050. We want more, we want faster, but look, start start here. You've got to take take the naysayers along with the right because otherwise they're just going to keep jumping up and down. It's true. It's true. Show how, you know, this can actually create opportunities for all sorts of Innovative technology solutions, mm. which we would love to see Australia leading into. All right, let's let's um, look at another different lens. So um, we've got indirect tax and international trade. So the Green Economy Agreement, which was recently signed between Australia and Singapore, um, establishes a framework to advance clean energy transformation, energy security, and trade diversification. So it um, it's it's essentially a, a kind of a freeish trade agreement to reduce not our tariff non-tariff barriers to green trade in particular. Um, it's, it will be promoting collaboration and investment and the harmonisation of standards, which I, that sounds very pleasant. And then the main sort of thing in this category, which I think will really resonate with people, mm-hmm. is uh, the next point. The uh, removal of the fringe benefits tax and customs duty on certain electric vehicles. Yes. From the 1st of July. From 1st of July. So that's this already, year. yeah. Yeah. That's... Amazing. I'm just waiting and waiting to see more and more movement and incentivising on the EV front. And then the parallel infrastructure things that we need to see happening with the grid, 
with, you know, charging, with all sorts of options about getting, you know, charging back up to the grid. Absolutely. You know, this sort of two-way thing that could be happening that could be really consolidated. And the knock-on benefits of, you know, when you tie up solar and home batteries with also, you know, charges and mm. what have you. So, it's, it's you know, it's this complex piece. It's, it's going to be a big... It's going to be a big infrastructure change and it's something that the, the government needs to lead on. And, but- and we've been having such green shoots in Victoria mm. with things like initiatives declaring all of our public transport buses will go EV Definitely. and the time frame on that. The, the, I'd like to – one of the other things that this will actually do is make Australia hopefully a more uh, lucrative uh, market for companies that make electric vehicles. Yeah. So we've heard – We've got the supply chain issue. Exactly. But in the in – you know, in the last few years, it's generally been this sort of accepted orthodoxy that you know most of the companies that or most automobile automotive companies are going to be kind of offloading the last of their petrol cars to Australia because there was no real incentive or um, market for electric vehicles in uh, as there are in other countries where they are far ahead of us in this. Hopefully, this is a step in that direction that will actually make. EVs not look like a luxury that people can will own, will only need if they've got money, as opposed to a, 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 a really a, viable, a option viable option for more people. Yeah, they're just you know the base prices are so expensive at the moment. Mm. Yeah, things need to be done Definitely. anyway, and they're they're starting to get done, which yeah. is great. Mm. What's All right. next? Innovation and business growth. All right, it's definitely a section that we look to. Mm-hmm. However, when I looked at it. It was very much about we are. This is consistent with Labor's plan for a better future, which has already been released a while ago. There are no changes to the R and D tax incentive. There weren't really any new announcements made here. Mm. Um, they talked about the fifteen billion. Let's not sneeze at that yep. over seven years for the National Reconstruction Fund. But once again, this wasn't new. Um, and then they, you know, unpacked some of the details. A lot of that sort of co-investment, which is a big change to the way federal government's been supporting industry. So it's sort of a move away from grants and concessional loans to things like co-investment. Where some of that might be significant for people, particularly in our industry, is that things like the entrepreneurship funding, which has been really amazing and significant for a lot of small businesses trying to scale up. Um, that sort of thing is being reduced because they want to move to a sort of different structure. And so I hear co-investment. I'm I'm not sure, you know, what exactly all of that will look like. They're talking loans, guarantees and equity investment. So I think still quite different from, say, public-private partnerships in the very pure sense, Mm. but some of that is a bit yet to be seen. Indeed, indeed. Cool. So an, in, an interesting um, change. Now, this is something that I think we are all uh, aware of is a massive uh, skills shortage in Australia. Now, the there the, there is looking to be establish Jobs and Skills Australia, which will be a consultative body that will work with uh, across the entire workforce in terms of, you know, employers, unions and government with training and education to address worker shortages and build long-term capacity in priority sectors and identify challenges, particularly in regional and remote and rural Australia, which is a, a, a great incentive. Hopefully, um, you know, we can couple that with some incre- improved uh, NBN connections in regional areas so that people who work in our industry and want to live remotely are able to do so. Yeah, and anyone who's tried to hire lately, you know, for very specific sort of skills within tech would mm. know that there's a lot of demand and it can take quite a time to fill these roles. Absolutely. And that, you know, it would improve some of our options if and we had migration things exactly. happening. Exactly, yeah. So, and absolutely, migration is, an, is another another thing that they're looking to increase. Mm. Um, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, 
particularly in sort of t- the tech space, migration, obviously having someone in the room is great, but the, the, the scope for remote working is a lot greater when it in, mm. you know in well and we should we should clarify too you know when you say increase you just mean increase on right now because really we'll only be retu- returning mm. to pre-pandemic trends exactly if we reach 235,000 arrivals in 2022 23 mm. so um yeah it still takes time to ramp those sort of things up so i guess just putting the positive policy signs out there definitely is sort of saying yeah we are open to skills coming in for sure. Mm. Speaking of skills and business, um, taxes. We can't can't talk budget without talking taxes. Uh, the budget does have a few uh, tax collection measures for multinationals. So we're talking about our Googles and our Amazons and our Alphabet. The people we love to report on when they're doing bad things. Exactly. But sometimes when they're doing good innovative things. Absolutely, we love when they do good innovative things. But a good innovative <laughs> thing for them to do would be to pay some effing tax. So hopefully, not even that innovative. Yeah, but just good. Just good. What well, is innovative? But even that, it's probably a new thing for them. Um, but yeah, so they're, they're gonna, the government is going to be boosting the ATO's capacity and revenue receipts through increased funding for the tax, the ATO's tax avoidance task force, and hopefully yeah, that will. We have to be always yeah. very cautious when we hear these things happen, and we're just like, let's not be another robo debt. Let's Absolutely. please be really careful how you design that. Sure, and if you're yeah. going to be robo debt, go after Amazon. No, that's not okay. No, Dan, <laughs> no, Dan, not. take that back. You I'll, don't mean that. I'll, I don't mean that. No, but. Having, having said that, I think, um, look, it will be good to see if we can, you know, increase tax revenues from companies yep. that aren't paying any. Yeah. Um, and tying back into the news we had about the Attorney General talking about extra penalties for data breaches, mm. um, Digital Rights Watch released some budget commentary that called out the fact that the budget did include a boost of 5.5 million dollars for the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, specifically to investigate the Optus data breach. Um, Sorry, sorry, and Digital Rights Watch sort of called out that they thought this is great but falls short of what's needed for meaningful long-term improvement. And, of course, it it falls short because it's only focused on one breach. And clearly we're seeing, you know, a trend Mm. towards greater risks in this area and then, you know, needing greater controls and how is the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner should start saying OAIC because Mm -hmm. that's too long. Um, going to be able to cope with that without extra resources. Definitely. And, and look, I, I have a strong suspicion that that particular budget measure was written after the Optus breach but before the Medibank private yes, breach. Yes, yes. Um, so, look, I, it, if, if anything, clearly it's something that needs to be funded in an ongoing manner because these are happening literally weekly at the There you moment. go. Yeah. And well done. That's the budget. I but, hope we didn't bore anyone and we kept it relevant. True. And one, one more thing, increase in penalty units. And uh, that just means basically that... Uh, all, all fines um, are based on penalty units, and so the increase in the penalty units will mean that you know all fines across the board are probably going to go up. What's a penalty? So like pe- when would that happen? So, when so, do you get fined? So, so when you get a, a, a you know any, any kind of fine uh, that's issued by the federal government for a breach of well, that's what I'm yeah. asking, I guess, because I only yeah. really have heard of local council fines. What do, what would the federal government fine you for? Like importing something wrong? Well, or? yeah, possibly, like, but you know, a, a lot of the um, pen- penalties for that are done for breaches of a contract or breaches of breaches of government. Oh, yeah. I see. So, so the fines the government issue are actually. Oh, broken sorry. Up. It's just that when you say penalties, I think drivers' licences, and I'm trying to think at a federal level, what do they cover? Yeah, they're, they're, I'm like, and how many points does a multinational corporation? Well, that's, have? It. that's exactly it. So, so every everything oh, is wow. based. Yeah. So it's this is something. It's a real my, gap for me. 
Dan. Yeah, well, I should probably I'm being vulnerable scale, here. Be kind. Scale back. <laughs> My day job is in uh, government, and I've learned that a penalty unit is how government fines are calculated. Oh, right. So, so when when you write some legislation, mm. you will, it will be rather than saying you know the penalty for doing this wrong thing is fifty thousand dollars. Yes. What they say is the penalty to doing for doing this wrong thing is one hundred and twenty penalty units. Oh. And so what that means is that they change the penalty unit value each year, mm. which increases the fine without having to change every bit of legislation that required that has a fine named in it. Got it. Yep. It's just a clever legal instrument, well, legal technique. Mm. Mm. Oh. Thank you for that explainer. Very useful. Well, I, th- I hope I explained it. I well. hope some other people didn't know because otherwise I'll just, you know, I'll lean into my foolishness. Well, I was going to say I hope I, I, hope I was correct when I said <laughs> that. I could have been completely incorrect. Triple R. We're here for the last little bit of bite into it. Dan, Vanessa, it's us. We're keeping it snappy. We've got some opportunities and events we want to call out. We do. In the opportunities, Start Space, um, who are associated with the State Library Victoria, they have a scholarship that's supporting very new businesses in what we know is a super tough market at the moment. So it's been generously funded by a philanthropist, Lisa Ring and her family, and this is just the second year of these scholarships. So it's it involves $10,000 in seed funding, plus it's bundled with a bunch of business coaching and um, and a sort of physical location within the start space at the State Library Vic. So it's a really generous, you know, Kickstarter for people with business ideas. Uh, the applications do close this Sunday the 30th, mm-hmm. so we just wanted to call it out again before it closes mm-hmm. and just to get people aware of it because hopefully if it does well, it might run another year and um, it's another great little opportunity for small businesses. So uh, check out startspacehq.com mm-hmm. slash scholarships. Absolutely. Um, something else that's closing on the 30th of October is the uh, Start Mate Accelerator, uh, which is surrounding you with a network of ambitious peers and the best mentors, investors and operators across Australia and New Zealand. Um, they'll give you 120k in your startup if, uh, and it comes directly from the mentor community, which means that the mentors actually have skin in the game, which is a really great idea. Obviously for much more mature you know, sort of businesses definitely, at this point. Definitely. Um, they'll help you uh, define where you focus your energy, set your goals and unblock you so you can move more quickly than you ever thought possible. So I'm that's... feeling like Chakra is coming to mind <laughs> when I think they're going to unblock me and fund me. Indeed. What a great opportunity with Startmate Accelerator. Closes this weekend. Beautiful. Hey, and uh, that has been our show for the evening. We want to do a massive thank you to our guest, Dylan McDonald, talking about Foodini, like Houdini, but with food, um, <laughs> an app to help you deal with intolerances and allergies. Thanks to my co-host, Mr. Dam Salmon. And thank you to Vanessa for being my co-host. My pleasure. Thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, podcaster Carrie Smythe. We've been Bite, and we'll be back next Wednesday. Do stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.